for a verse, Hebrews 30, 11, 32. We'll be finishing up Hebrews 11 this morning. So as you're turning or typing um, at the moment, uh, just a little bit of recap. We've been working our way through the book of Hebrews now for several months, um, are nearing the end, as it only have, has 13 chapters. Um, and Hebrews is a, is a letter that was written by an unknown author, and it was written to a primarily Jewish background church who is, is struggling because they, in this day and age, it's prior to 70 AD, um, Christianity is illegal, Judaism is legal, and they're struggling with whether or not they should go back to Judaism because they're suffering um, some persecution, some torment, some things are not going well and are, and are increasingly going to get more difficult. And so they're questioning, is Jesus sufficient? Is he enough? Or should we just go back to where we were? And the author of Hebrews has consistently and constantly just held up this, Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. He is better. And he's compared Jesus to so many different Old Testament themes through the sacrificial system, um, through the priestly system, through the prophets. Um, He's just continuing to say, look, Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. He is better. He is wonderful. And at the end of chapter 10, because chapter 10 had a warning And the warning was, listen, if you leave this salvation, there is no other salvation. There is no other sacrifice for you. This is the one and only way to the Father. And then he encourages them at the end of chapter 10. And he says in verse 39, But we, speaking to the church, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so he's saying, listen, you are going to endure. You have endured. Stand firm. Endure in Christ. He is enough. And then chapter 11 begins, and he just goes through several Old Testament heroes, um, stories that they were familiar with, and he's telling them and saying, look, they had less than you had because they did not yet have the cross. They were looking forward to a Redeemer, putting their faith in the fact that God would keep his word. But we get to look back and see that Jesus came. And that through his life and his death and his resurrection that salvation has come and that we have hope. And that he has given us access back to the Father. And he's going to take us back there. And so he's saying we have more to cling to than they did. And yet they endured because they were looking forward to a reward that they could not quite see yet. They were seeing the shadows dimly and yet we get to see the reality in full. And so he's encouraging them. And so I want us to pick up in verse 32 as he begins to finish this chapter. And so he says in verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead by resurrection. Right, and so you can almost picture what the author is doing here is he is almost whipping them into a frenzy, right? Or if you like um, big kind of epic historical movies, right? This is like a gladiator, a braveheart scene, right? Where he's saying, church, you can do it. You can endure to the end. You can stand firm. And he's talked already in chapter 11 about Abraham, about Moses, right? He's gone through and talked about Enoch. He's talked about Abel. He's just continuing. And he says, and I can list this one and I can list this one. And you don't even need me to tell you their story because you know their story. Like there's more than we can mention. It's not just that there's this one faithful person who endured. 
I can just list them. I can't even get into all their stories because there are so many. We can do this, right? And, and you can almost just picture like this battle cry of him charging into battle saying, church, we're going to endure. We can do this. And so after Genesis, which is where it started in chapter 11, with Abel, with Enoch, with Noah, with Abraham, we then go into Isaac and and Jacob, we saw Sarah, we saw um, Joseph, and then moved into the Exodus, right, into Moses' story. And then we moved into the promised land. And where he's going to end chapter 11 is, is here, is he's going to move beyond now the promised land into the era of the judges, to the monarchy, and to the prophets. Basically, he's just kind of summarizing all of the Old Testament, saying there has been faithful endurance by those who have trusted God for thousands of years, for generations. And so he mentions just a few. And the first four all come from the book of Judges. So Gideon's story is primarily in Judges 6, 7, and 8. And Gideon was someone who, after seven years of the people of God being kind of held down again, because you're going to see in Judges this cycle of them pursuing and loving God, of him sending a rescuer, and of them sinning greatly and having someone conquer them. It's just kind of the common thread of the Old Testament, but you really see it heightened in Judges. That, that Gideon actually asked the question, he says, Hey God, why are you forsaking us? I've heard the stories of how you brought our people out of, Exod- out of Egypt in the Exodus. All these mighty tales. And yet here we are, and after seven years, we, we're being held down. Why have you forsaken us? And then God begins to use Gideon to free his people. And so one of the stories of Gideon was that he had an army of 32,000, and God whittles it down to 300 to go into battle with no weapons. Right? Then he takes something weak and he makes it strong so that Gideon and the people of Israel would know that God is the one who rescued. That God is the one who is redeeming and is bringing victory. Right? So he says, you know this story of how God has used Gideon. He then mentions the name Barak, right? who is in Judges 4 and 5. Barak's story was that after 20 years of being oppressed by another nation, right, that he's used to lead an army into battle. And his story is connected mostly with um, a judge and a prophetess, Deborah, who told him, listen, when you go into this battle, it will not be for your glory. You will not be the one that's seen as leading this. And yet he still led them. And he tells Deborah, because she was a woman of God, he says, I will go, but not without you. Right? That he's putting faith in the one who God is speaking to, and he's, and he's okay with not receiving the glory. Jephthah's story is in Joshua 11 and 12. He's another warrior, right, um, who, who led them into battle. And then Samson in Joshua, or, sorry, Judges 13 and 14, his was after 40 years of Israel being kind of held down. They're dealing specifically with the Philistines. And listen, Samson, his story, and all of their stories are kind of wrought with some shameful behavior. These are not faultless people. They have failures, and, and Scripture tells of them. But that Samson it has struggles with, um, with women, with being very gullible, and yet he also wins some mighty victories by his strength and his might, which he knew came from the hand of God. We then mention David, right? The, the greatest king, 
who was also a warrior, a poet, who as a, a younger man had killed Goliath. We, so, we, are, we know his faults as well, right? With his affair, having the woman Bathsheba's husband killed, right? That this was a man who had his faults and yet showed faith. Then we see Samuel, who's kind of mentioned as on behalf of the prophets, as one who would stand and be a voice of truth in an era of a lack of moral or ethical behavior. And then he just mentions, and the rest of the prophets. And then he begins to just tell these stories of victory without even attaching names to it. Who through faith conquered kingdoms. We see this in in the Old Testament story, that they would continue to, to sometimes be victorious who they enforced justice, right? As they set up a society and a culture, they obtained promises, like they got into the promised land. They stopped the mouths of lions, right? This is Daniel and Daniel 6, let alone that David killed a lion, that Samson killed a lion as well. That they, they stopped the mouths of lions, they quenched the power of fire. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3, right? Where they stand before and they say, listen, our God can rescue us from this. And even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. Right? And, and they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And the fire does not consume them. Right? So the, the author here is just continuing to tell them and remind them of these stories that they would have known. Of those who are faithful in the midst of difficult circumstances. Faithful in the midst of trials and difficulty. And saying they endured and they had less than we have because they did not yet have Jesus. They were only hoping in and looking forward to this. Who quenched the power of fire, who escaped the edge of the sword. Elijah would be an example of this in 1 Kings 19. Were made strong out of weakness, right? This is Gideon and so many others. They became mighty in war and they put foreign armies to flight. Verse 35, and women received back their dead by resurrection. We have multiple stories in scripture of this. Two would be 1 Kings 17, where Elijah... Um, is able to raise the widow's son. And then in 2 Kings 4, where Elisha is able to raise the, Shunammite, the Shunammite's son. Right? These stories of women receiving back their dead. And so you can just see this like crescendo coming of you can be faithful, you can endure, you can do this because of Jesus. That there are victories, there's deliverance, there's endurance, there's miracles, there's obtaining of promises in church. Some this morning would have you to believe that's where the scripture is going to end. Right? That it stops there. That now we only win. Right? Because that's what the promise is for eternity. And we see this in Hebrews 11. But there's this misconception then as a believer that this will be your story. And only your story. And yet it continues. And let's pick up in verse 35. And some were tortured. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And so listen, you have this like crescendo coming, and then he just kind of drops the mic and says, oh yeah, 
And there are also some stories that are harder to hear. With death and imprisonment, torture and abuse and solitude and destitute and homelessness. Right? And he just begins to, to lay these out before them. Right? And if we're not careful, the church has sometimes had a tendency to say verses 32 through 35 and the rest of chapter 11. That's our story. That's your story. That's the only thing that's awaiting you as a Christian. And we just kind of leave out the end of 35 through 40 that those were also faithful and they were faithful in the midst of horrific circumstances. And in through difficulty and that God is pleased by it. Some of, the, some of our examples of this, um, church history would tell us that Isaiah, the prophet, was sawn into. In 1 Kings 19.10, Elijah escapes with his life. He, he avoids the sword, and yet other prophets were killed by Jezebel, the, the kingdom then. John the Baptist right, has his head delivered on a silver platter. Stephen, in the book of Acts, is stoned. Right? Jesus' life himself facing humiliation, mocking, beating, crucifixion. James, the, one of the disciples in Acts 12, 2, is killed by the sword by Herod. Right? That we know that Scripture tells these stories of faithful, godly men and women right? who don't get the victory in the, in the worldly sense. That they face difficulty, suffering, and even death. There's a book, it's, it's an old book, um, it's a hard read, not in that it's hard like, to understand, but it's just, it's, it's an emotional book. It's, it's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And this book shows kind of the, the depths of the depravity of man and the ways that we have come up with to, to hurt, to persecute, to torture those. But Fox's Book of Martyrs is telling the story of those who have stood and said Jesus is sufficient even when their own physical body was going to be taken from them or beaten or someone that they loved. And so whether it was they were boiled in oil or left in prison or crucified or burned alive or drowned, just story after story of God's grace meeting them and being sufficient in those moments. Around the world today, our brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering right, for believing in Jesus, for calling upon His name. And that is not, for for the most part, our story too much yet. But it is the story of brothers and sisters around the world whose, whose hope and whose faith is not in this world. But it's in the hope of what God has promised. Because this world has had very little good for them. Tertullian, another church father, would say that it is the blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church. And pretty much anywhere where we see where massive persecution has come, the church has grown and thrived. Because God's grace has met them there. Because he has been seen to be faithful and trustworthy and true. Even when worldly circumstances are not victory and deliverance. But difficulty and struggle and strife and death. I want you to notice that in Hebrews 11. No motivation, no reason, no amount of faith or lack of faith is given for either of these categories. It wasn't that the first ones who who got to win. Right? Then it was because their faith was so much better or more significant or sufficient. And it wasn't that the second group was like, well, because they were, they were second-class Christians, right? They got to suffer. It's not, it's not 
about faith here. It's about the hand of God determining. And yet their faith was enough to sustain them whether they won or whether they lost in this life. Look at verse 39 again. In all of these, all of the aforementioned were commended through their faith. They did not receive what was promised. It's saying in this life they did not yet get what was promised to us. That we are meant to be with God for all time. Where all, right, all death will be wiped out. All tears will stop. And we will be with Him forever. That's what we're longing for, the heavenly city. And this world is not our home. We are passing through. We are travelers and sojourners. And so we are headed there. And because that's what they were looking to, they were willing to endure whether they put foreign armies to flight or whether they were sawn into. And both pleased and honored God and brought glory to Him. Right? But here's where, if we're not careful, we as a church, as the church in, in America and in the West, we can be lulled into complacency. Right? Of like, those, these hard things don't happen. These hard things don't happen to us. What we do is we win. Right? Because we're the American church, so we win. So we're always delivered. And we're always victorious. And we always put foreign armies to flight. And we always shut mouths of lions. And the fire doesn't touch us. And we can begin to believe that this is our story. And we leave off 32, or sorry, 35 through 40. And so when suffering does come, we're shocked by it. We're surprised by it. And we accuse people of not having enough faith. And yet, those who suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment, destitution, solitude, were honoring God through their faith, through their obedience and their endurance. Do we see it? Do we expect it? I want to just give you a few verses here. This is 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. He says, don't be surprised. Like, expect this. Be anticipating that this will happen. If you turn back to chapter 2 in 1 Peter, right, in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Right, that Peter's saying, so don't be surprised when suffering comes. And second, you're, you're supposed to, like we're supposed to follow in Jesus' footsteps, right? In John 15, Jesus tells us the servant is not greater than the master. And that in this world we'll have trouble, that we should anticipate it. In Psalm 119.71, the psalmist says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And then in Romans 5, verse 3. Paul writes, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. James, right, tells us that that it's for our good, right? 
Right? So we see over and over and over and over again in Scripture that numerous people said, expect suffering, expect tri- tribulation, expect trials. And when it comes, God's going to be using it for your good. Right? Like that we should anticipate it. And yet, I think for most of us, the first part of this section feels really familiar, and the bottom half feels kind of foreign, and we're uncomfortable with it. And yet, we're told to anticipate it, to expect it, and we see that both are pleasing and honoring to God. We see Peter and John even struggle with this at the end of John 21, right? Where, where Peter's being told, hey, you're going to be led off at the end of your life, taking a place you don't want to go. And Peter looks back at John and goes, well, what about him? Like, what's a John get? And Jesus says, it doesn't matter. If I, want, if I want John to stay until the day I return, what is it to you but you be faithful? Right? Peter and John, two of the, the inner circle of disciples who have very different, very divergent paths, and yet both pleased and honored God through their faithful endurance. And yet what God had orchestrated for each of them was very, very distinct and very different. Church, suffering is going to reveal to us and to the world a couple things. And it's this, that Jesus is sufficient. That he actually is enough. That he's true to his word. That he satisfies us. That he keeps his promise and his grace is sufficient. It is easy to say that when we are only winning in life. But when suffering comes and you're able to say, Jesus is still enough. He is still sufficient. He still has me. Right? When your soul is able to truthfully say that and the world sees that, right? That he is true to his words. There's a book I read years ago. And it's set in the early 2000s in Afghanistan. A couple of girls who are foreign aid workers and missionaries. And they're um, captured by the Taliban. And at one point they spend... A long period of time, basically in a pit in a Taliban um, compound. And at the end of it, they're, they're rescued because it's their, their book they're writing. And they say, There's, there are days where we wish we were back in that pit. And people are like, they, when they hear that, you're like, you're crazy. Like, your life is so much better now. And they said, yes, but Jesus was so near there. Right? Like, that is what Hebrews 11 is trying to teach the church in, that it's being written to and it's trying to teach us that Jesus keeps his word and that when we endure, he is faithful to meet us in those moments. Listen, we don't go looking for suffering. That's not our task. We are not called pursue suffering. Make sure you can find it right so that you get it. But when it comes, when it comes, are we trusting that Jesus is going to be enough? Right, because it may come through words. It may come through a diagnosis. Right, it may come through um, your, come from your family. It may come from friends. It may come from work. It may come from some some way that we can't even envision yet, and we don't go looking for it. But there's a few things that we can do when it comes, or if you're currently in it, we can remind ourselves of this: that He is with us, that He has never left us, that He has never forsaken us. He's with you. And your circumstances don't have to be great for him to be with you, and they don't have to be horrible. He's with you. He is near. He never leaves, and he never forsakes. And not only that, he understands because he was physically beaten. He was verbally abused. He was betrayed. He was mocked. He he was humiliated. And eventually his life was taken from him. So whatever it is you're suffering, in your body, in your spirit, in relationships, 
with even potentially facing death, Jesus understands and he is with you and he is not forsaking you. Romans 8 reminds us that in the midst of our circumstances, he is working for our good. Even the hard ones. This is Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So he's saying, look, and listen, you have suffering, but it's not even worth comparing to what's coming for us. Later in that chapter, in verse 28, and we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, right? That he is working in the midst of it. And so regardless of whether you can see it or not, does not determine whether God is bringing good out of it. Right? The issue is, is do we trust that? Do we trust that in the midst of this horrific circumstance or this difficulty or this brokenness that God can and will do something? Do we see him as sufficient and as faithful and as trustworthy? Whether or not you see dimly yet or you see clearly. Right? He's calling us to show faith and to trust. Church, this is a, a difficult thought. But the idea that suffering is your servant. It is there to serve you. You're thinking, well, I don't want it. Like, send it away. But it, it is serving you in that it is going to give you more of Jesus. That whatever it is that's attacking you, whether it's a person, circumstance, financial difficulty, your body, that it doesn't get the final say. It can throw everything at you and it doesn't win. Because Jesus gets the final say. Right? He's already told us that we win. And that for all eternity, right, we win. And so the, the surpassing weight of glory that is coming for you will, pay, will make whatever you suffered pale in comparison. The good news here is that for some of you, you've suffered a lot. And so if you look at that, he's not saying that you didn't suffer, but he's saying that what is coming will make it look like it was nothing. That shouldn't make your suffering look little. It should make the glory look big. That he is sufficient. That he is creating in us, that suffering is creating in us dependence upon God. That we see him, that we trust him, that he is near, that he is gracious, that he is with us, that he is for us. Church, the grace that is going to be required to make it through any of these circumstances will be provided when you need it and not before. And so this morning, if you're thinking, I could never fill in the blank. I can never deal with cancer. I can never deal with the loss of a loved one. I can never deal with the loss of a job. I can never, right, just fill in the blank of whatever it is that you fear. I can never, you don't have the grace you need for that this morning because you're not going through it. And so the, the trust here, the faith here, is that if that is my story, if that is something that is going to come for me someday, do I believe that God will meet me in it? And that he will give the grace I need to make it through. That he will be sufficient. And that I can depend upon him. Can I trust that? And the author of Hebrews is saying, yes, yes, over and above, yes. That those who won had faith and Jesus was better. Those who lost, right, that Jesus was better. Church, maybe one of the hardest things we'll say this morning is this. Suffering in this life is not equal. Some of you will get more than others. And it will not be due to sin. And it will not be due to a lack of faith. 
It will be due to the sovereign hand of God. And we may not always be able to clarify why that occurred on this side of heaven. It's not like there's a quota, right? And when you get all yours, you're like, whew, rest of my life I don't have any more, right? It just, there's no, there's no comparison here. Because listen, some of these got to see foreign armies turn and run. They got to see their dead live. And others were sawn in two and lived in destitution and solitude. Right? There's nothing fair about that. Right? There's no, there's no amount of like, well, you get a little more suffering. We're going to give you a break because you've had enough. But hear this. You are not being missed. You are not being forsaken. You are not being ignored. Right? You are not sinning your way into these circumstances. You're not displeasing God. It is not a lack of faith that is making it occur. But we trust that God is at work. That he is not forsaking us. That he is with us. That he is working for our good. And that despite our circumstances, we get it all. We get all the glory and all the victory, even if our decades in this life are really hard. That he will sustain us and he will be near and he will be enough. Because the overall theme of Hebrews 11 is this, is that Jesus is better. For those who got to see the mouths of lions shut, who got to see the flames not burn them, they got to say, Jesus, the Redeemer who's coming, is better even than this victory, even in this moment. Right, like that. This wasn't that wasn't enough reward. That was momentary. What they needed was the one who's bringing all victory. And for those who lost in this life, they're saying, "Bring it. Bring the suffering. Bring the pain. Bring the loss. I will count it all as gain." Right, for getting Jesus, because this life is temporary, and what He is bringing is eternal and forever. And we are eternal people, not temporary people. We're going to look at this more in depth next week, but in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, kind of continue, he finishes the thought of chapter 11. And so he says, The church, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so he shares in chapter 11 all of these stories of victory. Then he, he brings the reality that some will suffer, and yet God is still honored by their faith. And then he ends by saying, so whether you are in the victorious camp or the suffering camp, would you look to Jesus? He is the author and the perfecter of your faith. He, with joy, went to the cross. The joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's saying that is the final word. That is the final saying. And so, he gives this imagery of a race being run, and there's people around cheering and yelling, you can do it, you can endure, you can make it. He's just saying, don't give up. Don't go back. Don't forsake. So church, we need one another to lift each other's chins, because some of you are going to suffer more than others. And you need to be reminded that it's not due to a lack of faith, but that Jesus is near. We need to hear stories of how you endured suffering, 
right? So that we can trust that he will meet us in those times, in those moments that may be coming for us. That we would hear and see and know that there's a crowd of witnesses encouraging us to finish the race well and together. And that part of how we want to go into 2020 is that we want to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He's saying, don't coast. Don't drift. Don't think you're just going to ease your way into this. You're going to run. And you're going to run to Jesus. So keep your eyes on him. And lay aside the sin that you need to repent of that's going to trip you up. And then he says, lay aside the other weights and other encumbrances, some of which aren't sin. They're just things that distract you. They're just things that will, will make you want to put down deeper roots in this life. That will make you want to be lazy and not diligent in pursuing Jesus. And so maybe this week we just begin to ask him to reveal what sin do I need to confess that's going to trip me up? And what other weights or encumbrances that maybe aren't sin, but that are weighing me down and are causing me to coast and to be lazy and to drift, do I need to get rid of so that I can pursue and run hard and endure and make it to Jesus, who has won the victory? So church, here's, here's a final thought, and then we'll be done with and move into a time of worship through song, response, reflection. Maybe for 2020, we need to redefine what a blessed life looks like. That it's not comfort and ease and riches, long life and health. Those may be a part of what God has for you. And we will rejoice in those good gifts because they're good gifts. But we not assume that that is the sign of a blessed life. That a blessed life instead is the one who is near to Jesus. Who is trusting him despite any and all circumstances. Both in the good and in the difficult. Both in the abundance and in the lack. That is one who is faithfully enduring and trusting him. And riches and, and long life and health may be a part of that. But that's not the blessing and the gift Jesus is. That he is sufficient and that he is enough regardless of what you face today or any day in the future. And that he is working for good, that that has already occurred to you as well. Would that be the hope that we as a church walk into 2020 with? That we would not be a people who shrink back, but we are those who will endure to the end because Jesus is one. And through his life, his death, and his resurrection, we have hope that we will stand with the Father for all time. Let's pray. Jesus, there is such a temptation to see the suffering that is before us um, as all-consuming, um, as, as evidence of, your, um, of you being displeased with us, of a lack of faith. God, would we be encouraged this morning that the faith and the endurance that we can show and reveal in the midst of the hardest circumstances of life are pleasing to you. God, that whether we quote-unquote win in this life or we quote-unquote lose in this life, that the victory is, is that we have hope, peace, 
trust faith in you and that you are working it out with, for our good and for our reward. Lord, that it's not for naught, that there is glory coming that we cannot begin to imagine. So, Father, would we not try to compare our suffering with others? God, would we help and encourage and share of your grace, of your mercy, of your presence with one another as we fight and claw through life, waiting for the day where you will right all wrongs, restore all things, and wipe every tear from every eye. And for eternity we will be with you, feasting, loving, enjoying, and glorifying the one who has won the victory that we could not win on our own. Jesus, would you be pleased? In your name we pray. Amen.